Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman, here with my special co-host of the Ohio University AECOM Sports Center for Sports Administration series with Laura Waters-Brown, and extremely excited for today's two guests from Excel Sports Management in Emilio Collins and Jose Diverge. Um, we'll get to it here, but life after Court Street, let's start there. Um, Jose, Emilio, both had uh, some different journeys coming from Athens and into the industry. Emilio, let's start with you just on your uh, quick GPS from Athens to uh, where you are now um, as Chief Business Officer at Excel. Sure, absolutely. First of all, thank you for having us on. Uh, great to see you both. Um, and always great to talk about OU and uh, life in Athens. So I uh, was definitely fortunate to be a part of the class uh, when I was in Athens back in 96, dating myself now. Um, you know, from, from OU, or I should say actually before I even went into OU, you know, I was undergrad at Michigan State uh, where I was a student athlete there and got to be exposed to the sports industry in a variety of ways. And so I knew I wanted to have a career in sports. I just didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And I think going through the program at OU allowed me to really hone in on different areas, different sectors, getting a lot of hands-on experience as the program is known for. Um, I started to really gravitate toward events in particular. And so started my career out in events, working on the agency side. Um, my first job actually was being operations coordinator for the New Jersey Festival of Hot Air Ballooning. So doing a full on event operations, putting that program together, which fun fact is the largest hot air balloon festival uh, in the East Coast. So, uh, so that was way back in 96, uh, moved on to an agency called ISI doing a, a variety of event management roles. Um, we then rolled up into SFX Sports Group as part of a uh, an acquisition spree over the next few years. Um, and when I left SFX, I was um, doing all business development for our events business. Uh, then we went to the MBA in 2001, uh, started there in sponsorship, uh, had probably seven different roles at the league uh, over 15 years. Um, and when I left, I was leading the global sponsorship business before joining Excel in 2017. Emilio, I gotta, I gotta ask before we go to Jose, because you know, in sports, um, a lot of people don't really realize that when you're working, you're not doing anything involved with the game or the action, but you had to have gotten to go up in the hot air balloon, right? <laughs> I actually didn't, you know, and I'm embarrassed oh. to say that. I, I meant to, I never got to, and I think it was uh, part of my chaotic, uh, youthful work ethic then where I was just doing everything else but having fun. Well, I, I, I certainly think the hot air balloon ride is probably on the, uh, on the list for the future then, I would assume. Definitely. Jose. You have, would you have worked for free hot air balloon rides? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't look all that fun. <laughs> Jose, your, your journey was a little bit different. Little, little bit different, uh, but not also to start. Thanks, thanks for having us, Jake and Laura. Um, and uh, Emilio, I gotta say, I didn't know that about you. And that's gotta be the best fun fact ever uh, <laughs> that I've heard. So uh, that's, that's, that's awesome, that's awesome. But, um, but yeah, for me, it, it was a little bit of a, of a winding road. Um, uh, I grew up, uh, you know, playing sports as well, was a student athlete, uh, my, my career aspirations were in baseball, uh, playing 
Major League Baseball, uh, went to college, and uh, I was a minor league level player, frankly, right? I, I, I got a few offers, but nothing nothing major. Typically, you, you know, graduating as a senior and you're getting these $1,000, $5,000 signing bonus opportunities to go play single A or double A ball for a few years. Um, and for a lot of different reasons and information I had access to, it just didn't make sense for me, but I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. So I was, a, I was a door to, I was doing door to door sales. I was living with my parents and I was doing door to door sales, trying to sell electricity providers to residential home owners or apartments in New York City or uh, people who operated their uh, small businesses, right? Um, and I got a random call from a professor uh, that just happened to be a fan of mine and thought I uh, thought enough of me to reach out and say, hey, I have an alum who's at the Jets and they're looking for an intern. Are, are you interested? And I was like, Jets? Door-to-door -door sales? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm interested. But I didn't really know what I was getting into. Um, and happened to, you know, wasn't looking back, I definitely wasn't as prepared as I should have been for the interview, but I was fortunate enough to um, uh, really get the opportunity. And that's when my mind exploded. I was a part of the sponsorship group. Um, I didn't know, I knew I loved the, what was happening on the back, um, behind the scenes uh, in sports, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I started doing some research and then I figured I wanted to be a general manager in baseball. I looked at the career path of a lot of GMs in that space. You know, some played ball, some had the analytics background, others were connected to the family ownership, et cetera. Um, but all of them, for the most part, mo most of them had a higher level of education. So they either had their law degree or their um, MBA of sorts. So that's when I started looking into graduate school um, and was fortunate enough to get to Ohio University um, I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity with the Philadelphia Phillies uh, to help develop their Latin player development system. And I actually left school early, two months into the two-year program um, because of this best practices uh, um, document I put together. And they took a shot on me. And it was a life-changing experience. Uh, but I got to say, my third day on the job, I realized that this was not what I want to do for the rest of my life. Uh, it was a, a rude awakening for sure. Um, stuck it out through the year, uh, but realized I wanted to stay in sports. So I went back to Ohio actually uh, to finish my degree. Um, and I got exposed to everything. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be in sports. Tried marketing, tried uh, events, no offense, familiar, but events realized it wasn't, wasn't for me either. Um, and uh, I was given a project by Mr. Kaler to help raise money for the golf outing. And we created this sponsorship concept. And that was when my mind exploded. I realized, all right, I need to be in sales. No one wanted to hire me uh, for a sponsorship opportunity coming out of grad school that I didn't have the experience that they were looking for. Um, but I learned that if I went to ticket sales and learned how to sell and can prove myself, especially selling it to uh, corporate America, um, that I can increase my chances. So that's what I did. I took the job with the New York Yankees, uh, started in ticket sales there. They're opening a new stadium. They were having trouble selling their tickets as well, you know, well uh, um, documented. And I was able to find some success there and then navigated into the, the, the sponsorship side of the industry. Um, then I spent some time uh, with Major League Soccer, um, with Legends, uh, then I got into the meet to get some media experience. I was recently at the Players Tribune and now really excited about the opportunity to join the team at Excel and what Emilio and the leadership team is building over there. So now I'm a part of the property sales team at, at Excel. 
That's awesome. And I know both of you have really different uh, experiences and pathways to where you are now, which is so great and unique about OU, right? As it kind of prepares you to take on whatever your journey may be. I think it's Doc K maybe who draws that uh, picture of what your career path will actually look like, which you think it looks like, which is a straight line, and then what it actually looks like, which is a whole bunch of lines all over the place. So it's so great to see and reiterate to the students that, you know, when you come out, your first job doesn't have to be the end thing. You're allowed to change your, change your mind, change your position, change your career path. So thank you both for, for sharing that. Switching a little bit into kind of what we want to make sure the next generation or current OU students and future OU students know, what's, a, what's one of the biggest lessons or the lesson that, you know, you've learned from your time in Athens, um, whether it be at the program or on First Street, uh, that you kind of use today uh, in, your, in your business or personal life? Go ahead, Jose. Um, I would say, I mean, th there's so many lessons along the way and, you know, you're at different points in your life and you just learn different things, especially as, as you're looking at what's next and the next goal or the next skill you have to develop. But I think ultimately, uh, the one that really resonates with me is that we're, we're in the people business. Um, and that's regardless of what part of the industry that you're in. Um, you know, you have to perform. You can't, you can't overshadow performance. You can't hide performance. You have to perform. But ultimately, as you, you know, continue to grow throughout your, my career, I've realized that um, the relationships that I've developed um, and been able to sustain, maintain and nurture, frankly, um, have really made the difference for me. So uh, I would have to say that uh, we're in the people business. Yeah, I'd say from my time at OU in particular, um, it's curiosity, right? And making sure that you're always finding ways to learn, raise your hand to get more information, think about how that information is refining your skills, how you're applying it to the roles that you have. Um, you know, and I'll give you an anecdote. Uh, in my very first day at the NBA in 2001, I was assigned uh, the new Reebok league-wide partnership as an account I was going to oversee. And um, I was handed a 146 page contract to read and spent the whole first day reading it, highlighting all the things that didn't make sense to me and spent my entire second day sitting down with a lawyer, having him explain it all to me, right? <laughs> so, and this goes you know, well beyond just you know, the specific benefits they get in the agreement, you know, wanting to understand exclusivity provisions and insurance provisions and the group license and why we structure benefits a certain way and why we have protections a certain way, all the sort of macro items that you need to learn, you've got to, it's got, you've got to be founded in a base level of real curiosity around the business. And you know, you're going to learn a lot more that way and you're going to be able to apply your skills in ways that are broader than just what's being asked of you in a specific role. Emilio, you talk about the curiosity component, which I think is fascinating in that within partnerships, right, there's, there's so many different ways a partnership can evolve, a partnership can come together. Um, and if you're curious at that beginning of the process, right, you know, fact finding and, and understanding what the client's objectives are, there's so many different ways a partnership can evolve. And I want to kind of take our next part of the conversation into the partnership world, right? Where innovation, tech, content, it's all evolving um, and rapidly. So as you see partnerships evolving and you go back to that curiosity lesson, um, what are you curious about now in terms of how partnerships are going to continue to evolve um, in the future? 
Well, first, Jake, I want to comment on, on your first point um, of your question. Uh, couldn't agree more in terms of the necessity for real curiosity in the partnerships business and the need to be really great brand listeners, right? And uh, it's something that, you know, we uh, ground in our team every day, making sure that uh, our job, first and foremost, is being great brand listeners. We have a diverse offering. We sell a number of different properties across multiple sports. We have uh, a couple hundred athletes represent on the talent side. We have uh, a cohesive brand marketing service. Uh, so there's lots of different ways which we can help brands in sports and entertainment. And business development starts with just great listening and figuring out how can we be most helpful? How can we provide the right solution? The other important uh, sort of ground rule that I think everyone needs to have in sponsorship is nobody needs a sponsorship. There's not a company in the world that needs to sponsor the NBA or the NFL or MLB or the PGA Tour. You've got to show them why. You've got to show them why it makes sense. Yes, every company needs advertising. Every company needs word of mouth, awareness. You've got to show them what the connection is that makes a sponsorship work. And so that has to be rooted in what is that that connective thread between a brand and a property's audience that's going to make that audience uh, you know, relevant to that brand, right? And so finding that intersection is really critical in order to do that the right way. It's got to start with real curiosity and understanding all that you can about a brand and their business. And it's also that connection with the people, right? As, as Jose mentioned, if I can kind of take it back to Jose's comment, it's that connection with the people who are ultimately making the decisions and then having to implement right on their end, because it's not just how does it work for you, and Excel or whatever property you're representing, but it's also that person at the brand has to go and then report to someone else to say, hey, here's why we're doing this. So Jose, question to you, um, you know, from an innovation perspective, how are brands thinking a little bit differently now? How are you having to approach or change your questions as you're getting to know people um, in terms of figuring out, you know, what their objectives are? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, um, you know, to, to Emilio's point, and you touched on it as well, Jake, and um, look, the relationships are critical, as we know, uh, but no one's doing sponsorships because you're a good person or because you're their friend. Um, and I, I think really the art in what we do uh, from a sales standpoint, and really for anyone, frankly, is our ability to gather information, right? And how can we create a forum where uh, the marketer is comfortable with sharing intimate details of their business, right? And how they look at the future. Um, because without that information, we can't really come up with a solution, right? And I think really that's what our goal is and, and our role is as an agency and the clients that we serve is how can our client base be a solution for what X business is looking to accomplish with their growth strategy and whatever their priorities may be. Um, you know, and as far as innovation, I think we're seeing now that there's some really, really cool deals and partnerships that are coming to life in categories that we've never even probably considered in the past, right? Um, whether it be B2C brands like a DoorDash that's looking to, to uh, really, you know, uh, expedite their growth with uh, couldn't be better timing with the silver lining of what's happening with COVID and people ordering from home and looking to help small businesses. And I know they did a really cool program with the NBA on giving back to black owned businesses specifically. 
um, or other traditional B2B brands that are looking to leverage sports as a, as a way to showcase their capabilities, their technology, et cetera. So to Emilio's point, no one has to do a sponsorship. There are a multitude of options of how they can tell their story. Um, but I think what sets us apart and our clients apart in sport is that there is an intimate and genuine connection with a massive consumer base, right? And, and, and good partnerships are able to uh, really be uh, strike that intersection and pull at the heartstrings that are hopefully is going to be able to drive business, increase uh, brand awareness, or again, as, as I mentioned, whatever those priorities are. So um, the innovation aspect of it is, is changing and evolving every day. And I think that uh, media and uh, the emotional aspect of sport are, are at the center of that. Yeah, and, and just building on that, I mean, you know, you mentioned technology and um, again, everything kind of starts with what is that intersection? What's the story, right? So we spend a lot of time for any major partnerships really thinking about the narrative, the story overall. And especially when we're doing outreach for you know, major, properties, it's naming rights or jersey position, you know, the types of propositions where you may have to talk to four or five, 600 brands in order to find the right fit. We've got to make sure that there are multiple angles that make the story work. And a lot of times, you know, that comes down to two things. How will, how can the brand be integrated in an immersive way with the property, right? That will automatically make them resonate with the target audience. And how can they more importantly, make the fan experience better, right? That's how you really gain relevance. And so, you know, you think about uh, Microsoft and all they're doing right now, um, and obviously there's probably no, no partnership more visible in 2020 than Microsoft Teams working with the NBA in the bubble. That was really cool, right? Like there's no better way to showcase their technology in a really meaningful, immersive way. It made the fan experience a lot better than looking at cardboard cutouts sitting courtside, right? And so that's a way to drive real relevance for the business, started with a, an authentic technology need that the league had, and then uh, evolved to a point where it really made that experience that much better. And I'd say, you know, generally technology, to me, uh, in the last few years, technology has become the new endemic in sports sponsorship, right? Because that you can more often than not tell a really meaningful story about how you're making the organization better, how you're making the fan experience better, and how you're creating an incredible case study for the rest of your non-sports business. Some really great tips and information there to kind of build on what you were both talking about in sponsorships and being needing to be innovative and how you really bring in the brand and focus on their goals, but also aligning with what's new and upcoming to always push uh, the limits. I think one of the things that we hear from some of the students, right, is how do you do that? I think in 2020, there's been a big wave of uh, brands and partners and organizations diving into the um, into new areas, whether it be technology, as we mentioned, whether it be social justice, whether it be what have you. What are kind of some tips that you all have, or how do you, I guess, get into that, I need to think differently space, right? Like what, what do you have a, a song or a tennis ball that you throw up or a process? Like what is your process? How, how do you put yourself in a place to think differently, I guess? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, 
I'd say for the brand marketing segment of our business in particular, and, and, and we have you know, three core segments to our business, the brand marketing uh, and, and consultative work that we do for companies, the talent representation and our property representation. Uh, on a brand side in particular, and this is relevant maybe across all of our business, but probably uh, no place is it more prevalent than in the brand side of our business is everything has to be grounded in insights. Right? We've got to make sure that we're constantly thinking about consumer insights and how those can drive decision-making. And so that, that um, provides for, um, requires us to make sure that we constantly have a pulse on consumer trends and the data supporting where consumers and how consumers are consuming brands or consuming content and what's gonna be most relevant to them. Uh, and that, re that requires us to make sure that we have a, a constant pulse on that. And so we utilize about 12 different external data sources uh, to uh, keep an eye on consumer trends and insights, making sure that we're always relying on them to inform any decision-making around ideas that we're putting forth in the marketplace for our brands, whether that is ideas for brands and how they can be activating a sponsorship or it's ideas we wanna put forth if we're selling a talent or selling a certain property program. Uh, so making sure that everything is, is truly grounded in insights, especially when we have you know, a year like we did last year, which hopefully we'll never have again in our lives, where the, 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 the world is just changing so incredibly fast and the ways in which people are consuming content and, and really consuming brands is evolving so much. And so I don't think there's ever been a time where uh, marketers have had to rely on insights more than they have had to in 2020. Yeah. Jose, any other, any other thoughts before we uh, dive into the rapid fire? No, I, absolutely. Well, one, one thought that I think um, uh, built upon what Emilio shared, which I you know, obviously couldn't agree more. I think the other thing about it, where the re creativity is required is, as we know, and for those of those, the listeners that don't know, um, there are rights that we have to navigate around as well, right? Like, what can you actually do? Right. What can uh, what can not only as it relates to um, the rights uh, that specific to that particular property, um, but also their other partners and their other categories that they've made commitments to as well. Right. So um, but again, it, it, that then brings you back to the information. Right. And having access to the information and, and, and really understanding what you can't and can't do. And then how can you think outside of that? bubble to come up with other innovative ways that don't conflict with those rights, but also um, really uh, leverage the consumer trends that we're learning and where um, we're the, uh, building a proposition that is going to help achieve those client goals. So I would say uh, navigating rights as well um, required as are required in the creative thinking process. Yeah, and the trends and, and data and insights and that cuts across a number of lines, certainly from how consumers are activating um, that allows us to think about or how consumers are really engaging brands allows us to really think about the best ways to engage with them. But it's also where a lot of the new categories and sponsorships are coming from. So we use it significantly from a prospecting standpoint. And you know, we, we've seen some pretty phenomenal you know, new categories. We were involved in one significant one with, with Vistaprint, um, which you know, people have traditionally looked at as a, as a um, business card printing company, right? Uh, and they're really a, a multi-service um, design and, um, and office infrastructure partner. Um, and so 
their core business is small businesses. Uh, and you know, they wanted to really transform the perception around their brand and evolve it uh, from, you know, from where they were to being you know, more of this full service solution to small businesses. And so we created a partner with, partnership with them and the Boston Celtics to really transform uh, the perception around the brand, but really to orient it all around how they're serving uh, and being a full service solution to small businesses. And, and we see you know, a lot of other examples that you know, obviously you know, food service delivery, as Jose mentioned, is a key one. A lot of the new technology sectors, uh, the ServiceNow deal, which was all around with the NBA, all around workflow. No one's ever even thought of workflow as a specific category. And so um, all of that is just rooted in what are the trends? Like where, where are we seeing businesses go? Where are we seeing the needs for them to use sponsorship as an amplifier? Um, and where can a story be told, right? Without there being a, a real workflow story to be told in the MBA, that ServiceNow partnership would, would never make any sense. We started off this episode with both of your stories, right? And I think, um, Emilio, before we go to rapid fire and wrap up this episode, I, I want to touch on the ath athlete representation side, right? Where there's different types of partnerships where you're, you've got a totally different bank of content that you could dive into from possibilities. And I want to just ask uh, to you and Jose, kind of how you approach that side a little bit differently or how um, brands might go about the storytelling component differently with an athlete as opposed to a property team league, et cetera? Sure. Absolutely. No, it's a great question. It's um, in many respects, a very different proposition. Um, the athlete endorsement business is a high volume business. We do upwards of a thousand transactions a year at our company. And the vast majority of those are our athlete endorsements of various kinds. Um, and they all are very different across sports as well. You know, our three biggest sports are golf, baseball, and basketball. Um, and, and, you know, athletes resonate in different ways in those sports. Um, like it's no secret that you know, basketball players have become some of the more marketable athletes in the world in the last decade in particular, um, and are certainly used in much different ways based on where, how, where and how they resonate with fans. They are the most socially engaged, they're most digitally engaged, they are leading edge in terms of content production and development. And they're also just the most visible just by the sheer nature of how the game is presented. And so partnerships are tailored you know, accordingly, right? To, to leverage those strengths. Uh, and I say, I say the same applies for the other sectors. Um, we've seen some really interesting stuff across the space of our athlete business. Um, you know, in particular, uh, a lot more content uh, where athletes can get behind the stories and the ways in which a brand is immersed with, with, their, with their story as an individual athlete. And so, um, you know, the most overused term in sponsorship in the last decade is certainly authenticity, but it's never been more true, especially in athlete endorsements where there has to be a hook. Consumers are smart enough to understand what's true and what's not. And so is there a real authentic connection? Um, you know, I, it's interesting, probably in the last two years in particular, I've seen much more of this where we can get into a conversation with a brand and before it goes much further, uh, the first question will be, well, hey, can we send some product to make sure that, you know, uh, you know your guy really likes the product and is gonna authentically use it, right? And so we get into that a lot where, you know, so much of our office has just boxes of products shipping in and out uh, to make sure that there's a real connection there, that the athlete gets it, 
um, and that it can be used either as an enhancer for performance or it's a lifestyle play, but it has to be grounded in that, that story of authentic connection and belief in the product and brands and consumers uh, are smart enough to know, you know the difference of what's true and what's not. And then from there, then how do you build the right proposition? Um, what are the ways in which content can be incorporated into that, which social can be incorporated into that? Will there be authentic use in terms of above the line advertising and integration? Um, but just, you know, our, our athletes are smart, they get it. They, they also don't wanna really uh, be a part of partnerships that don't feel real to them. And so we spend a lot of time really thinking about them as brands, thinking about the ways in which we can continue to build them as brands, the right types of partnerships that will be amplifiers to their brand value. Um, and then spending the time in the market to hone in on the right specific companies within those categories that will make sense. Oh, it's fantastic insights. I mean, that that whole side of the business, we could go on and on and probably have a whole uh, series on that alone. But um, I want to get to the rapid fire as we close up. I'm going to start with Jose in that obviously both of you were both student athletes, but um, I know myself outside of being a, a baseball student athlete, I had other sports that I enjoyed. Um, Jose, I know you're a baller and that might be the, that might be the way you're going to go with this answer. Um, but if you could have been a student athlete in a different sport, what would it have been? Um, football, actually. One of the things, uh, I was, I was a high school quarterback, uh, for my first three years. And then at my senior year, I decided to just do baseball that year. Um, but I loved I love throwing the football, like the, the idea of reading a defense and understanding routes and positioning and all that stuff. That's something that's something that I've always enjoyed. But I'm 5'10 and I'm 185 pounds. So uh, when I was getting recruited for college, they wanted me to play cornerback and I was not going to be standing in front of running backs coming at me full speed and I had to make a tackle. So I gave up on that. Hey, Drew, Drew Brees and Russell Wilson are 5'10". There's, there's nothing, nothing stopping you. You also have massive hands and can hold the football <laughs> that they can launch. So, <laughs> Emilio, what sport? I mean, I was a wrestler in college. I, uh, uh, I, I graduated school at the time. UFC was just getting off the ground. It's been uh, funny to see so many wrestlers do so, so well in that. Um, but uh, I, I don't know if that would have been for me if, if the UFC was in its prime back then. I think the surprising one for me would be um, NASCAR driver. Uh, I just, I'm a very aggressive driver. I always have been, I love it. I, I've never done this sort of test drive of the track, but it's, it's one of those fantasy experiences. I still got to check off my list. So hot, hot air balloons and NASCAR <laughs> driving, got it. <laughs> That's it's awesome. Maybe we can find somebody to hook you up with the NASCAR iRacing programs. Get you Jeez. in there. <laughs> this one's a little, a little easier, I think. But reflecting back on your time in Athens, one of the most important times of the day is after Court Street closes down. Your favorite or your go-to post-Court Street food wow. or spot? I forget the name of, it was not Bronies, because Bronies was more of uh, like, you had to order like meals, but the pizza spot that was down the street and they were like a dollar, dollar slices. Uh, yeah. What's the bar? Goodfellas. Goodfellas. Yes, Goodfellas. So pizza. It wasn't better than New York pizza, but to your yeah. point, when the when Court Street closed down, it was, <laughs> it was the best option. Um. 
Yeah, for me, um, it was actually uh, my classmate Stephen Nelson's kitchen. Uh, <laughs> uh, Stephen was my, my best friend in school and he, uh, he's now president of Contigo Health. Um, great guy and he lived right off Court Street. So we'd all converge there. I love it, I love it. Uh, Doc Higgins uh, had a bagel. He, he still is eating the same bagel every single day. He doesn't know what it's called. He doesn't even know what's on it. He said, I just walk in like the G that he is. He just walks in and they just give him his bagel. <laughs> I love it. Emilio, uh, we'll start with you on this one. Favorite place you've gotten to travel through all of your work so far? I would probably say India, uh, Mumbai in particular. Uh, it's a pretty fascinating place. In fact, on my last trip there, which was probably around 2012, um, or maybe 2014 actually, uh, I had a week trip there. It was, we, we had opened the MBA office in India in 2008 and we're investing a lot of resources against it. Uh, and I had a week-long trip in Mumbai and I enjoyed it so much that I, I stayed an extra two days and just traveled around uh, and took a lot of photographs. It's just one of the most colorful and vibrant places you'll ever be. Safe to say that if you could work from home anywhere and travel anywhere, you would do it in India for a week. Sure, sure. Yeah, I would probably do that. Jose? I'd have to say Tokyo uh, for me. Um, I was really fascinated by how well run the transit system and just the economy was run there. I, it was just foreign to me. I had never been to a, to any country in Asia. Um, and frankly, it wasn't even a business. It wasn't originally a business trip. It was a boys trip. We went to Tokyo, visited a few places, but I was actually able to get two meetings while I was out there. And I was able to extend my trip, uh, so I, I'm glad my boss was able to was willing to approve my flight back, and the hotels. Uh, but it, it was Tokyo. I learned it was just a fascinating experience. It kind of opened my mind to um, just how you know how to just efficiencies and the the importance of efficiencies that you know being a New Yorker, love love my country, love my city. Uh, but there's a lot of things we could do better. And I, I just figured that I felt that Tokyo was you know, was just a really well-run community. Well, the, the Olympics are coming up. That might be a trip to go back for, uh, you know, that's... Yeah. Speaking of bosses approving budgets, if Emilio says I could go, uh, <laughs> I'll go. Got that hint. Hint. I'm just hopeful they still go off. I right. know, I know. Yeah. Well, Emilio, Jose, both of you, thank you so much for your time, your insights, perspectives. Um, really appreciate it. And uh, go Bobcats. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Go Bobbies. <laughs>